How are you doing today? Happy Easter. We're so glad you're here. Would you do me a favor? Would you welcome Hillside Fontana, our first ever Easter in Fontana? We're so grateful for that. Um, a, a quick a quick confession before we really, really, really get started. So this is pre-sermon confession, okay? You're your church, so it's confession. So last uh, Sunday was the Masters. I had spent like the last little bit of the morning here um, thinking, I just don't want to know what's happening. It finishes its East Coast, we're West Coast. And so like after it's over, I'm walking through church like this. Uh, don't tell me the, the, the result of the Masters. And so I get on the shuttle and people are sort of teasing me. Do you know who won? I'm like, I don't want to know. Be quiet. I'm like closing my ears and I get home. I do sort of my Sunday afternoon ritual and I put a sweatshirt on, put my hood over my head. Don't want to talk to anybody, just stare at the TV. And I love to watch golf because it puts me to sleep like that. Um, right? Anybody with me? Okay. So I'm watching, I, I turn it on, Tiger's on the 12th hole and I'm just, that's what I, I want to see if Tiger can do it. And I'm watching for like 30 seconds and there's an interruption. We interrupt this uh, regularly scheduled pro- program. This is Jim Nance from CBS Sport with a 2019 Masters Champion, Tiger Woods. And I went, no! <laughs> no! I waited all this time. My wife comes in. She's like, what is your problem? I'm like, I went through all of these, like, church, shuttle, all these kind of things, didn't even know. And then they didn't even give me an alert, like, hey, we're going to ruin the whole Masters for you. And then uh, he just said, here's our champion, Tiger. I watched for the next two hours. There was no mention of who won it. I just had to, like, sort of endure. But you know what happened? I watched the rest of the Masters. I enjoyed it, but I had no anxiety because I knew how it was going to turn out. Spoiler alert for you real quick. Jesus dies but Jesus is risen and that that is the kind of spoiler alert that when we live into that story it begins to make our life the troubles that we may face the anxieties that come our ways the the conflict in relationships that that can come our ways when when we know that there's resurrection power when we know that at the end of the story Jesus is victorious it takes some of the pain away in a moment and not all of us are living out of that good news Not all of us are fully aware of all that has been accomplished. And we're still living a life that I would say is on this side. We're we're on this side. We're trying to fix. We're trying to solve. We're trying to control. We're trying to make things happen as if it all depends on us. And we're holding on tightly to life. And we're just trying to make things happen. And God gives us an invitation to live the kind of a life that is only possible through God's strength. And he's saying, will you trust me with that broken relationship? Will you trust me with those fears? Will you trust me with those anxieties? Would you trust me with that question, those doubts? Would you trust me with that hard time in your life? Would you trust me with the pain and release? So if you have a Bible, grab it, turn to John chapter 20. If you have a smartphone or a tablet, I would love for you to find John 20. Here's here's what's cool. I don't know if you've ever done this. You can literally Google John 20, and it will pop up. I'm going to read from the New International Version, the NIV. But before I start reading, I just want to set the context of where this Bible story begins. Jesus has been teaching for some three years. He's been performing miracles. He has followers, disciples who are with him. One of those disciples, one of those closest to him, Judas, betrays Jesus. Totally turns his back on him. 
Jesus is arrested. Jesus is taken off and there's a mock trial. He didn't do anything wrong and yet he's convicted of wrongdoing. He's beaten, mocked, crown of thorns placed on his head. Uh, A sign is made. This is king of the Jews. He's crucified on a cross. He's lifted up on this cross. He dies on this cross. A Roman soldier, which by the way, they were really, really good at execution, pierces his side with a spear to just make sure he's dead and he is dead. They take his body off of a cross. They put him in a tomb of a man named Joseph of Arimathea. They roll this massive stone in front of the tomb. It's sealed with this uh, seal from the Roman government to say nobody mess with this, nobody touch this. Soldiers are positioned outside of the tomb to make sure nobody gets in, nobody gets out. And then you get to John chapter 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Something had happened. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple. This is John who is writing this, talking about himself. The other disciple, the one Jesus loved. I don't know if you, you, you catch that. John is writing about himself. He doesn't name himself, but he's like, you know, I'm the one that Jesus loves. John is talking about himself. And Mary comes to Peter and John and says, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we don't know where they have put him. There's confusion. There's misunderstanding. Their expectations weren't matched. She's trying to figure out what has happened in this moment. They know that Jesus has died. They know that Jesus is buried. They know he's been put in a tomb. They know that soldiers are supposed to be guarding the tomb, but they're not. And Jesus is gone. And she's distraught. Now, what's interesting is that she is the first eyewitness to the resurrection. Even that fact is revolutionary in this day and time. Maybe not in ours. In this day and time, a woman was not even allowed to give testimony in a court because their testimony was considered invalid. And yet Jesus is turning everything upside down and he's saying, you better listen to her. You better pay attention. And so she comes running and she tells them this. Look at verse 3. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. What does that have to do? It has nothing to do with the resurrection. John is just sort of jabbing Peter like, I'm the one he loves, and I'm faster than you are. Take that. I don't understand how it has anything to do with anything. Uh, Verse 5, he, John, bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, in case you forgot, also went inside. He saw and he believed. John is saying as he looked into this empty tomb with Jesus missing, he saw and he believed. But, But look at the parentheses the parenthetical statement verse 9 they still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead it's interesting because I don't think John is bragging on himself I think he may be saying I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved and he couldn't get over it he couldn't believe Jesus loved him and then he writes but we still I saw I believed but we still didn't understand we still didn't have it all figured out it still didn't make perfect sense to us verse 10 Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. So Peter and John saw, they looked into a tomb, Jesus was missing, and the next thing they do is they go back home. 
as if nothing happened? There's a, a key to what is going on here in, in verse 9. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus, here's, here's the phrase, had to rise. Jesus had to rise. We just say that with me. Jesus had to rise. Why did he have to? To have to, the way it's used here in the, the Greek original language, it means in order to accomplish what you hope to accomplish, you have to do this certain thing. It's not like a have to, like somebody's twisting your arm, making you, like my kids will wake up tomorrow morning, do I have to go to school today? Or like some of you are like, do I have to go to work today? And my wife will say, yes, you're the pastor of the church, you got to go. <laughs> do I have to? Yes. This is more like about 10 years ago when our daughter had first been diagnosed with cancer and we were in the pediatric intensive care unit. And my wife looked at me and she says, you know, this will probably ruin us financially for a long time, but we're going to do whatever we have to do to care for our daughter, right? We'll pay any price, we'll go any place, we'll do anything. We'll do whatever we have to do. Why? You do whatever you have to do for those you love. So implicit in this statement is an idea that God is so in love with us. God is madly in love with us. Do you know that? He's not mad at you. He's madly in love with you. And Jesus had to rise to accomplish all that was designed for your life. All that you and I have been created for in order to experience it. Jesus had to rise. But what does that mean? And why did he have to rise? Just a few examples from scripture. Number one, he had to rise because of sin. Because sin needed to be broken in our lives so that we could be forgiven and set free. We're told in scripture that we're all sinners. We, we're born with this nature, this propensity to sin. And then eventually we get old enough and we do sin. And in order for the power of sin to be broken in our lives so that we can be set free and forgiven and experience his grace, Jesus had to die and Jesus had to rise. And because he is risen, sin can now be broken. No matter what you face, no matter what holds you back, no matter what stronghold or addiction, there is power through the resurrection of Jesus because Jesus had to so sin could be broken. That's pretty good news today. Also, also Jesus had to rise so that the sting of death could be removed. I don't know if you came to church to hear this, but you're going to die. <laughs> you're welcome. You're going to die. I'm not threatening you like right now. I'm not saying right now. I'm saying at some point you will die, and, and many of us fear death, and many of us look to death with, with such fear and anxiety and uncertainty, and what we're told in Scripture is because of the resurrection of Jesus, for those of us who believe, death ha doesn't have a sting anymore. There's nothing to fear. The Apostle Paul says, I would rather die sometimes so that I can go and be with Jesus. The sting of death has been removed because Jesus had to die and then conquer death through his resurrection. Jesus had to rise to fulfill all of the promises of God and all of the promises that Jesus has made. Jesus had to. If you've been around Hillside at all in the past number of weeks, we've been in a series where Jesus, we looked at his sayings where he said this explicitly time after time, I must die and I must be buried and I must rise again. And again and again, the disciples didn't understand it, did they? 
And here we have Jesus risen, and still his disciples are like, John says we still didn't understand from Scripture that he had to rise. So if you ever feel like you're following Jesus and you don't always do it right, you're in company with Peter and John. That's pretty good company to be in, isn't it? Don't have it all figured out yet. And then Peter and John go home. Like, I don't even understand that. Like, Jesus is risen. You don't know where he is. And the best idea you can come up with, let's go home. So they go home. Look at verse 11. They go home, but Mary. Now Mary stood outside of the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. So the angels appear to Mary, and they, they say to her, why are you crying? I don't think they're saying it in, in a condemning way, like, stop crying. I think they're trying to get to the motive behind her crying. Are you crying because this is hard, or you, are you crying because this is hopeless? You know those are really different, right? We, we can cry because life is hard, because life is hard, period, right? And there are times when the appropriate response is to cry. If you've seen the news today and the terrorist attack of Sri Lanka, the appropriate response in moments like that is to, it's to weep. It's to be broken. It's to say, this isn't right. Are you crying because it's hard? Or are you crying because it's hopeless? That's a completely different thing. Woman, why are you crying? But here's what's fascinating. Peter and John have, have, can't find Jesus and they go home. In Matthew chapter 28, in the resurrection account, the earth shakes and the stone rolls away. And those two guards, remember the soldiers I told you? They're guarding the tomb. These are like seasoned warriors. These are veterans. They are so frightened by this resurrection, this power of the earth, that they themselves start shaking. And Matthew says they fall down like dead men. They pass out from fear and shaking. So two disciples go home, two soldiers lying on the ground, and the, the angels look at Mary and they're like, why are you crying? <laughs> because they've taken my Lord away. And I don't know where he is. Verse 14, at this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asks her, woman, why are you crying? I think they're trying to get at something. Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener. It's always a weird moment when you mistake Jesus for the gardener. <laughs> Thinking he was the gardener, she says, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. She's strong. She's on this side. She's strong. She's saying, if you took him somewhere, tell me and I'll go get him. I'll go get him and I'll bring him. Like, what is going on here? And Jesus said to her, Mary. It's the shortest sermon that Jesus or any other preacher has ever preached, ever. And you're like, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Can we speed it up a little bit? Mary. It's, it's this word of personal knowledge. It's like Jesus knows you by name, Mary, and he calls to her. It's like he knows all of us by name. He, he knows us. He sees us. He cares for us in that moment. She hears the master. She hears the Lord call her by name, but it's more than just that. It's he knows everything about me. I believe this is her light bulb moment where she moved from this place of what am I going to do? What can I do? I can fix it. She moved to a place of surrender and just 
Only God. Only God. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Or it can mean master. Or it can mean Lord. I think this is the light bulb moment for her where she finally realizes who Jesus is. Only God could bring a dead person back to life. Only God could fulfill all of those promises. I, I wonder if she remembered all those times at meals or whatever that Jesus said, I've got to die. I've got to be buried. I have to rise. And in this moment, she's like, Master, Lord, Jesus responds to her, do not hold on to me. I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. Here's what she said. I have seen the Lord. She's not only an eyewitness, now she's the one testifying to others, telling others this good news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them, that he had said these things to her. She told them all about what had happened. I, I believe this is that moment for her where she moved with, I'll do it, I'll go get him, I'll figure this out, to this acknowledgement and understanding that Jesus is who he said he was. And Jesus is going to do only what God can do. And this moment, this light bulb moment for her begins to change everything. Where she trusts him fully, takes him at his word, understands that what he is hoping to do and wanting to do is beyond anything that she can control or anything she can make happen. So she has one of those surrendering moments. Master, Lord, teacher. It's this idea, I'm your follower. I'm with you. You see, for all of us, there's a moment in life where we're going to have to make a decision, but I would say there's a series of moments in our lives where we have decisions to make. Am I going to try to be the center of my world? Am I going to try to fix and solve and make things happen? Is my life completely dependent on my ability, my resources, or is God up to something more than I can accomplish on my own, what we're calling only God kind of things? And we're actually limiting his power in our lives by just looking at ourselves and saying, hmm, I wonder what I could do about this. I wonder how I can fix this, solve this. I wonder how I could worry about this and by worrying fix anything. Remember what Jesus said about that? Worrying doesn't fix anything. And what if we moved into a place in our lives where we began to say, God, I'm going to trust you completely. To do what only you can do. And maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a marriage that feels beyond repair. But maybe by God's power there's still hope. Maybe it's a relationship that is so broken. It creates such heartbreak in you. And you worry and stress out and try to fix. But maybe God is saying surrender. Maybe it's crushing anxiety or despair. And you feel bad about that and you even look inside of yourself and you say, what do I need to do? But there's really not been a, God, only you can help me in this kind of a moment. All of these things are easier said than done. We're going to spend the next few weeks talking about what are some practical ways we can enter into this. But the first 
step is one of posture of saying, help. God, we want you to do what only you can do. And the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8, this idea of the power of God. Resurrection power, and this is what Paul writes in verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. This is what Paul is saying here, that the the same, the Spirit of God who, who brought Jesus from death to life, the same Spirit of God is who God wants to give to all of us as we trust and believe and follow Him. And, and it's the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead that wants to give power, resurrection power to our lives so that there's no circumstance, there's no situation that we would find ourselves in that we would say, well, not even God could do anything about this. But there's plenty of places where we'd say, only God can do something about this. And when we tap into his power, we're able to live lives way beyond our own ability or understanding. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or imagine. That's the kind of life God invites us into. And we have the choice how to respond. I want to take the the last time that we have, and I want to pray for two different groups. And the first is this. Some of us are Christians. Like, we know that. There's been a moment in our lives where we gave our life to Christ. We, We did. And that's not in question. And yet, it's almost like something happened way back when. Something happened, and maybe we feel like we checked the box, did that, and then we went on about our life as if it depended all on us. As if like salvation is this moment, well, I can't save myself, only God, thank you, got salvation. But we're going to live our lives as if it all depends on us, not on God. And there needs to be moments of surrender all along the way. But some of us are really good at bargaining and negotiating. We're like, God, I'll give you 25% of my life, but I'm keeping 75% ownership. And then others are like, well, no, that's not right. So, God, I'll give you 49%, but I want to keep the majority share of my life. I have 51%. And God's like, no, 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 it's all or nothing. Right? It's all or nothing. That's, that's what happens at salvation. That's why Mary calls him Lord. Lord. I've seen the Lord. It's a, it's a term of surrender. And some of us, we are Christians And yet, the way we live our life is as if it all depends on us. And I think there's a moment of surrender of just saying, God, help us. We can't fix, we can't solve, we can't accomplish the kind of things you do. And we want the kind of life that only you, God, can give. And for some of us, it's it's a relational struggle that we've been worried, we've been trying to fix, and we need to just say, God, only you. Some of it's, it's, that, it's the stress we take, it's the anxiety we have, it's the fear we have, and we need to say, only you, God, I want what only you can do. Whatever the burden, whatever the trouble, some of it's a physical thing, it's a sickness, it's a disease, and, and we've just been so consumed by that, but we haven't said, God, I need your help, only you. I want to pause on Easter Sunday and just say, hey, Christian, listen, listen. The same way we're saved, only God, by grace, through faith, is the same way we live our lives. It's time to get back to that place. Only God. Have your way. Could we pray?
And I just want to ask, is there anybody here that, that you would say, I, that's me, that's me. I've, I'm a Christian, but I've been living my life. I've been holding on to some things as if it all depends on me. I would love to pray over you. If, if your prayer would be, Aaron, pray for me because I just need to surrender this to God. I've been consumed by it. I need God's strength. Let's pray. Would you just raise your hand? If you're, if you're like, Aaron, pray for me. I want to surrender. I need to give this up. I've got my hand up. Anybody else? God, you know every circumstance. And you know every situation that we go through. You know the struggles and the pain and the worry. You know our fears. You, you know the things that we hold on to so tightly. Would you remind us today of your power? Would you remind us of resurrection power that is beyond anything we can do, anything that we can accomplish, anything that, that we can uh, create on our own? But when we surrender to you, the only God, and we surrender to you and say, have your way as only you can, there is a power unleashed in our lives as we surrender our limited power to your unlimited power. So God, will you do what only you can do for these women? for these men, for these young people, as we surrender to you. Do what only you can do. Would you fill us with your spirit, with resurrection power? Will you fill us with your peace that passes understanding? Will you fill us with hope that would flood out the despair? Would you fill us with your joy? Would you fill us with your power, God? with courage and faith to walk and trust you step by step by step along the way. I pray that these Christians would be renewed in your spirit's power today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.